Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Catherine Ingram. The following is excerpted from a session of Dharma Dialogues held in Lennox Head, Australia, in April 2018. It's called On Leaving No Trace. I also want to let you know that we've had a cancellation for the Italy retreat coming up, so we do have a spot left. The week-long retreat begins October 27, 2018, and we will get you to and from the facility from Rome's Fumicino Airport. A lot of our troubles are only troubles because we tell ourselves that they are. We go over and over the negative situations that we imagine or that already happened, and we just fixate on them. And then they become troubling (laughs) because we keep reinforcing that idea. You know, have you ever watched a toddler kind of, you know, sort of weaving along across a, across a, a floor, and suddenly the toddler falls. Often the toddler will look around at its mom to see if that was bad or not. And depending on the mother's reaction, the toddler might start screaming. Or if it seems like, well, that was okay, the toddler kind of gets up and keeps going, right? Kind of this, was that okay? And often we can apply this very simple formula in our own case. Check and see if the story you're telling yourself is really true. Is this really a big trouble? Is this a big problem in the scheme of things? Often the answer to that question is no. You're just making up. You have a narrative. We're very conditioned with narratives about our lives and how it's going and how it should have gone and what might happen and what did happen. And we go over and over and over the the story. Much of it is actually made up, though you might be able to make a case for it being historically accurate. A lot of your interpretation about it is made up. Another possibility is to really rest in an open awareness, in a simple feeling of presence. And don't bother with a lot of narration. You'll find you don't need it. You can actually function better without it a lot of constant checking of the problem, the trouble. Now this is not to deny, of course, it's not to deny when there are problems and you handle them, but at least you're not having to be burdened by a big sack of imaginary problems that are going to be draining your clarity, that are not going to be at all helpful for functioning. And that dim your light, right? They dim your light so that when you're you're in a circumstance of loveliness, 
but you're just going over your problems and your troubles in your mind. You're not, you're not there in the lovely moments. And also when you're with others, when you're with other folk, and you're enshrouded by the drama, by the old narration, it's very, it's impeding in the flow of the relationship. And we all know people who, every time you see them, you're hearing a litany of the problems. You know, you, it's, it's a common habit, unfortunately. I think for humans, there's something about um, maybe a, a false sense of preparation if you're kind of being braced for difficulty. So you're, you know, you're sort of preparing. I don't think it works well that way, that, that strategy, but I think that that is why a lot of people tend to go over and over and over the problems. But we also know as a, as a friend to people who have that tendency how tiring it is and how you feel you can't quite just be with each other. You can't just look at the sky or enjoy the breeze or talk about the colors of the leaves. That it might seem off topic to your friend who's invested in this imaginary negative situation. So I often emphasize that our willingness to direct our own attention in intelligent ways and in brightness, in the brightness of being, which is not something distant, by the way. It's just right here. It's always just here. You don't have to attain it. You don't have to do anything special. That in that directing of your attention, it's great for you. It really makes things nicer for your own life. It's also really great for everyone you touch in your life. It's really great for everyone else. Because at least with you, there's this space, you know, there's this space of rest, of just this, of sweetness, of simplicity. where we don't have to go over and over the problems. And on the other side, incidentally, might as well mention this part, it's also tiring to be with people who are constantly affirming how great their lives are. <laughs> That's another one, which you kind of suspect after a point. I mean, a little bit of it might be okay, but after a point you start to suspect maybe it's not as great. Maybe you're needing to tell it this way to make it seem so. A different kind of, of distancing, right? A different kind of distancing in a relationship where you're with 
with someone who has the need to let you know how fabulous things are for him or her or they or whatever one wants to call oneself. But isn't it nice just to be with someone who's just hanging out? Right? Is not on a, a negative track and is not on some sort of um, false positive or imposed positivity. <laughs> Just simple, just being, just like any creature hanging out, any, any creature. All we have to do is watch them a little bit and you kind of get the, get, get the message. I was just going to say, um, I so get what you're talking about. It's fantastic. Uh, the only difficulty I have at times um, is how do you sit with the darkness? How do you sit with the darkness? Yeah, how yeah. do you resolve it? And I managed to, through meditation, um, actually just sit with it. It's not my world. It's God's world, as I say. It's not mine. Um, but at the same time, uh, how do you sit with it in, in well, the bigger like, scheme of things? I like your, I like, I think the answer is in your question, in the sitting with it, that you don't have to fight with it, right? Uh, um, what you might be referring to as darkness comes in different forms for different people. It might come for some as depression, for others as regret, others as worry, others as um, t- thoughts that you find perhaps shameful. Um, you know, we have a range of what we could call darkness. And it's very conditioned, you know, and... You can't really own it, no. which is good. Um, so let's say it arises. One doesn't have to have a, a fight with it or be freaked out by it or in any way identify with it, right? You're not doing it. You're not doing it. It's passing through. It's like a program that got installed somewhere along the line and, and, and it's now running. And you... Your job, if it, if you will, not quite the right word, but is to just, you don't pick it up. You don't fight with it and you don't attach to it or think it's you or think that it's something about you. So one of my favorite lines that I say a lot is, assume the mind is mad. Start there. Assume it's mad. Not everybody has a mad mind. Some people are lucky. They don't have a mad mind. I don't know a lot of those people, but I'm sure there exist a few. I don't happen to be one of them. Um, and, you know, my, ma- my mind is mad as a hatter. I-, I sometimes tell a story of, like, it's like having a crazy old aunt who lives in the attic and who's just ranting and raving, right? And, you know, and you basically say, there, there, dear, now and again. You shout to her, you know, it's okay. Never mind. It's okay. Right. And so you're not trying, you don't kill her, (laughs) you know. (laughs) 
you know, and you don't have to make her try to become sane. But you don't hang on her every word, right? So like this, what you're calling the darkness really comes usually in the form of some thoughts that dissipate. Thoughts arise and they dissipate. Some of them are lovely, some of them are altruistic, some of them are depraved. And they come and they go. And to the degree that you have spaciousness, that you understand the spaciousness of your awareness around those thoughts, you will not be at the effect of those thoughts. This one here. Um, to the degree that you are at ease, no matter what's coming by, right? Then, then you're no longer a slave to the darkness. What about in one's observations of life and suffering? Say again. What about in one's observations of life and suffering? Yes, well, suffering is, is here. You can't help but see it. It's here. And sit with it. Hmm? And sit with it. And sit with it. And, and your heart will get broken a lot. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. as, you, as, you, uh, as you get more and more awake, people have a very m- misguided uh, understanding of what that means, being awake. Mm-hmm. They think it's going to protect them from suffering mm-hmm. <laughs> or that they're going to get somehow such to a level of uh, equanimity that, that they'll be unfazed, mm-hmm. you know, that they'll be unbothered or that they'll be transcended and I don't find any of that to be the case. I think that the more, the more clear you get, the more sensitive you become, the more empathic you become, and the more tenderized you become. And therefore, you are then s- subject to a lot more suffering, but you can handle it. Because you're also experiencing a lot more joy. Your, your, your spectrum of experience is bigger. So you're going to feel more on one end, which is the sorrow. You're also going to be able to experience all kinds of simple and tender joys. And all of it whooshing by, right? Whooshing by. Like Blake said, you know, you kiss the joy as it flies. It's flying by. But you kiss the sorrow as it flies as well. You know, and you're not... You're not braced against it, yeah. right? You understand that, you know, this world, this life, this existence, right? It has tremendous loss. Just, mm. just you know. So, uh, and as you, and as you get to a certain age, and if you have any friends. <laughs> You know, the losses start to become, I mean, I, I once described it in Dharma Dialogues. It's like, it's sort of like when you're watching a popcorn cooker. So when you're younger, you know, you can, like when the popcorn, you know, it's just one now and again in a blue moon. Like a doop, doop, doop. But there comes a point of life where it's just, you know, it's just like that. You know, it just seems like every time you turn around, one of your dear ones is leaving this stage of life. You know, they're, they're exit left off the stage. 
And I suppose if you live long enough, that popcorn popper slows down because most of your friends have already gone. You know, one of my dear friends, her mother lived into like 101. And she once said to her daughter, you know, the only people left now for me are so much younger than me. You know, that all of her own friends, her own original siblings, all, all of her people were gone. And she was just with people who were very much younger, mostly her own children. And she talked about the loneliness of that, that you, when you don't even have your own age group around, you know. Um, I, was very, I found that very poignant, right? We take for granted a certain conversation, a certain way that people are sharing our, our particular moment of, of history. You know, all of that was, is very interesting to consider, right? So yes, there's so much sadness in this world, you know? And there's a reason we love life, because there's a lot of, it's a lot of fun, and a lot of beauty, and a lot of interesting, mysterious things about this existence. And there's a lot of love, you know? And the more you sit in this ease of being, and not trying in any way, you're not working on a reformation project of you, right? When you're not on that project, you're a lot happier. You're a lot lighter. You're a lot more, you're a lot easier. So don't worry about this darkness. The only way it would be really an issue is if you were acting on it. If you're not acting on it and it's simply coming in the form of thoughts, then it's not to be concerned with. And everything, I mean, I mean there's nothing off the table. Everything that is allowed, however, however sickening the thought. Yeah, I am. Um... When I was younger, I used to suffer quite, you know, the existentialist sort of um, questions that would come to me even as a, in my teenage years and couldn't quite understand what it all meant. But I've been very grateful, either age or meditation, spirituality, that I don't need to know anymore. Beautiful. And that's liberation. That's beautiful. Love it. Yeah. And right. thank you for your answers because I feel like I'm on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, very much so, yes. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I have come to the same conclusion, right? There's not much we can really know. I mean, there's a few things, basic, very practical things we can figure out as the clever animals we are. But the big mysteries, right? You know? And the paucity of the religious stories that have been handed down, how kind of absurd they are, <laughs> you know, told to us by people who really didn't know much about anything, you know, um, with some few shiny exceptions. But most of the stories, the, you know, the myths of the religions, um, 
you know, are just absurd. <laughs> One thing I've come to, and I'm going to say it, um, that even those uh, sort of things, be they right or wrong, and I'm no one to believe or disbelieve, it's not for me, um, it doesn't make it real or unreal, but it feels like an unfolding of human consciousness. Yeah. That actually it's okay and it's yeah. part of the scheme of things. It's sure. not for me to judge, but it's the way consciousness is trying to unravel. Yes. Uh, rightly, wrongly, whichever way it be. Yeah, just part of the evolution of... Yeah. of, of, of yes, absolutely. Yeah. I see it that way too. Yeah. It had its function, had you its know. Function. Yeah. But I think also what has, has a place in the functioning is the, the moment at which we challenge the beliefs. Maybe just picking up, so I'm, I'm sitting here listening to someone. How, how to be a good friend to someone who is suffering. You can see someone is suffering, yeah. brother, sister, whoever, yeah. in this dark place, very ne you know, the negative stories, all the things you said. How, how to be a how to help, help's not the right word, but how to be useful well, in that yeah. circumstance, yeah. I think that, I think, of course, you know, in the moment you rely a lot on how it feels and what might be appropriate to say or not say. But in terms of where you're sitting in it, um, to what I, I'll just say what I try to do is, first of all, I, I, I sit, try to sit in a place of spaciousness in myself, even though I might be feeling some, you know, empathic reactions of concern, you know, and suffering with my friend, you know, feeling their suffering. But I also try to keep in mind a, a way in which I'm looking at them still in their wholeness, even though they may not be seeing it in the moment, you know, that I'll... I'll want to look through eyes of seeing them as okay, mm. you know, and as fresh. Mm. Um, and I find that when I'm in any kind of distress, it's kind of like the toddler. <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, if someone is looking at me and saying, no, it's okay. Um, I remember, I'm just having this crazy memory right now. Um, I was in Mexico, in a place called Zihuatanejo, and I was swimming with my girlfriend, and we kind of were far from shore. And I got into this swirl of, I forgot even what the story was, but it was sort of like something's wrong and something we didn't do at the back at the place we were staying. And I was in this hubbub of like, I mean, we're out in the, we're far off from shore. And she's a mother of three children. They weren't with us at the moment, but we're swimming along, and she says, well, I always just ask my question, is anyone dead yet? <laughs> and um, it was sort of like it just, all my worries just dissipated. <laughs> um, so, you know, just that sense of you're holding the space of it's okay. And especially if it is okay, if it's mostly okay. There are times when someone is in severe distress, right, that it isn't that okay. They're in terrible pain or they're in terrible fear or whatever. But leaving aside those, if we're just dealing with the sort of general garden variety problems and issues and neurosis and whining and all of that, or a little depression, someone's in a bit of a funk, um, 
that to be able to just sit in your own quiet, exuding that quiet with attentive concern, but a general quiet, but also seeing them as a much bigger being than just this momentary problem. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, that's what I try to do. <laughs> I often give that recommendation to therapists because I think a lot of therapists can fall into, and it's easy to understand, you know, someone comes in with sort of the same issue every week, the same kinds of problems, and you start to, you could start to see them as, you know, as that's who they are. So to really, really force the attention into a much bigger possibility, and then it opens up that possibility for them, for the client. Is it ever okay to hip and shoulder a little bit? To what? So, so I'm a friend. Is it, is it ever okay for me to give the person I love a bit of a bump? A bit of a, a bit bump. Of a bump, yeah. Um, a loving bump. <laughs> well, that would depend on how it's received. <laughs> you know, sometimes um, <clears throat> people appreciate that. Sometimes people are grateful. But if you sense that they're not going to be grateful and that, in fact, they might tense against it, in which case they're just solidifying the issue, um, then maybe that's not that helpful. Thank you. You're talking about, you know, greater awareness and you become more sensitive and more tenderized. Could this be the reason why many spiritual teachers go crackers? <laughs> or they become psychopaths at the same time? I mean, you know, I followed one who was crackers to begin with. <laughs> Um, I really don't know, actually. I, mm. I don't know. I've never speculated about that. I, yeah. I don't yeah. really know. It's mainly because I've had the experience of mm. following someone who, who was turned crazy. out to be a psychopath <laughs> rather than, yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly in general, I think some people um, do collapse yeah. under the weight of suffering. Mm. Um, you know, and it and it appears like they've behaved psychopathically or narcissistically, mm -hmm. but they've really cracked up. Maybe it's hard so. to tell. It's yes. hard to tell which is which. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of the followers go into denial. I've noticed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they mm. can't accept the bad behaviour. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's understandable that. Yeah. Once that bad behavior, especially if it's harming people. Yeah. Um, and, of course, people who are in positions of power, which often these spiritual gurus are, mm. you know, I mean, this, this, the stories are just rife with the levels of abuse. It seems it's just ubiquitous, really. Yeah. Um, it's very, very tempting for people in power. Um, to use that power in ways that are, are harmful to other people. Yeah. So as soon as anyone notices that, it's best to, you know, get away from it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly my, my question, but uh, something kind of on the lines of, it's like I notice if I, um, 
if I spe- spend a day like alone and if I'm not with people, I notice the mind can kind of bring me into kind of a kind of a trance in a way where then if I'm in connection then again with another, it's like I can, it kind of elevates me again, do you know? And I, I can see, it's like I feel that um, at times that I, like I need people to kind of help me or to kind of re-energize me. Um, and I kind of used to spend a large part before kind of on my own, I felt right. But yeah, there's kind of a, a kind of a loop that happens with me um, around that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, um, that's again, that's very normal and, and common to most of us, I'd say, that sometimes there's the aloneness and that's okay and that, that has whatever, um, you, you use the word trance, maybe I wouldn't use that word necessarily to describe how it is for me, but, but then when it's with people and it's a very different frequency, you know, it's much more, as you say, it's, there's another kind of energy and sometimes it's a more engaged, enlivened energy. Um, it's nice to be able to just flow from one to the other, you mm-hmm. know, especially if that's how your life is rolling. Some people's lives have a preponderance of one or the other. If you could just hold the mic still, oh, if yeah, you don't sure. mind, it's very sensitive. Um, so, um, you know, some people are alone a lot. Mm-hmm. perhaps too much and other people are just constantly with other people and have no space they might thrive in that but I think I suspect a lot of people who are just constantly surrounded by chatter and noise and doing and rushing and experience and objects uh I think a lot of those people are tired and weary from that kind of life. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you are someone lucky enough to have some quiet built in already into your life, enjoy. Mm. Yeah, it's like I do and I enjoy the quiet and mm. being alone. And it's just something happens where my mind can, I, I start to believe something when if I'm alone for too long, it's like thoughts kind of happen where I kind of lose myself in it. But I'm cool with going from bat one to the other, but something yeah. just happens there that I'm noticing, um, yeah, kind of a pattern. Yeah. You know? Well, um, you know what I, I said at the outset about don't make a trouble where there doesn't necessarily have to be one? Mm-hmm. So, you know... What you're describing is just some conditioned flow of your particular way of attending, and your awareness is now tracking it, mm-hmm. right? So you don't have to pounce on it and undo it and make it be different. You just sort of gently notice it and bring your attention back to hanging out in, in presence, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to do any reformation. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have any project of making your mind be different. Mm. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, it'd be, be nice. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice, and it is nice. And yeah, it doesn't sound, what you're describing doesn't sound problematic to me. 
Yeah, it's not causing a lot of strife, but just something even to name it, just to kind of um, dissolve it a bit, yeah. putting it out, That's that was the intention. I see. You know? Yeah, but sure. It, 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 there's a bit of a loop, but it's not too much. Not you know? No, not so bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've heard worse. <laughs> Are you from West Ireland? Um, I'm from Cork. In from the same. Cork, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I thought yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> Great, thank you. Yeah. I talk a lot about managing attention, right? You just you become your own lab, in a, in a sense. You become your own alchemist. And you manage your attention. And you don't have to, like I said, you're not having to pounce on it or anything. You're just, you're just gently directing it, right? So, as needed, once it's kind of flowing on its own in, in a lovely, meandering way, um, you don't have to direct it. It's it's if that's the default. If the default patterning is that you're just hanging out in attention, basic attention, basic awareness. Um, you know, you let it flow on as it as as it does. Um, but it's when it starts to loop around or become troubling or become depressing or you know, start telling you know, negative narrations, then you just gently direct it. Not about any kind of attainment. That is really uh, highly not recommended. (laughs) Right? Mm. Or to expect any kind of steady state. Again, not necessary. But just... A gentle flow, and sometimes there's a little flutter of something or a reaction about this or that. A depressing moment or thought or cluster. Or you read something in the news and it's aggravating or worrying. These are all normal things, part of being human, and they're flowing through the, the stream of awareness and they have with them feelings and emotions and reactions, all of which is flowing along as well. And more and more you're experiencing this, um, this, this quiet, right? Despite what's going through. I feel like I've I've come to that point um, just naturally, just fairly recently in my life, where I see myself more of as the um, observer, mm. um, and I I see my changing moods a little bit like clouds. Yes. And so, if I'm inexplicably happy one day, I'll go. Say, oh, happiness is here, you know. Yes. And but I don't expect to hold on to it anymore. Yes. Because yeah. I know that it will move through. Yeah. And uh, and uh, same, you know. If there's a little bit of anxiety. It's just like a cloud. Um, and I've stopped um, 
berating myself for not achieving what I set out to achieve or I'm, I'm, I'm letting things happen more and I'm much happier for yeah. it. Yeah. Or not happier, I'm, I'm more um, centred, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Mm. So I also um, have found that I am very empathetic and um, I find it really hard when... Um, to how to, how to um, be with someone when you know in 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 years well in ongoing problems and how you know if people I have a friend in particular who it was just over and over and over and over again the same problems and and I'm a bit of a fixer um, so um, I still I still don't think I've learned how to manage that. Um, in a helpful way. Yeah. Mm. I know what you mean. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But then one makes the experiment and, yeah. you know, with open heart and best of intentions and sometimes you realise that there's nothing to be said or done. Mm. And sometimes people just want a listening ear, you know. They just want a, a safe space that you provide and sometimes one comes to a point where you realize you can't participate anymore, that it starts to feel enabling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the years, I've had so many people tell me who became, you know, who had started to become more and more immersed in their own ease of being in that kind of, you know, big sky space. Um, that a lot of their former friendships that were based in a lot of neurotic sharing were falling away, like they just couldn't maintain them anymore. And there was some sense of loss and some even concern that they're going to end up with not many friends <laughs> because they really didn't feel like having those kinds of conversations and that the agreed-upon um, moan of what they'd always talked about was no longer interesting to them and, in fact, was wearying. Um, I've heard, I mean, really, I've, for 26 years of, of having these kinds of sessions, <laughs> I've heard people describe things like that, mm -hmm. you know. So, of course, that doesn't mean that one abandons one's former friends uh, who one doesn't consider uh, as chilled out as one uh, uh, oneself is. But uh, it's also fair enough for you to, to not have to be kind of the, you know, the, the dumping ground mm. if it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over. Um, and, yeah. and sometimes, sometimes a withdrawal, not an estrangement, but just a stepping away from, can be a very powerful message to the friend, right? It can be a very useful and powerful message, such that the next time you come together, they may be a bit more reticent to... Uh, 
go down that track of that old conversation. And in that coming together, it actually forces them, if they're being reticent about going on to their old patterns, it actually forces them into a fresher space. Mm. Um, I read, I don't know if it's true, but I read that Gandhi... Um, you know, lots of people were volunteering around him. His scene was, you know, there were a lot of people volunteering their time, a lot of very talented people. And sometimes these people had big egos and clashed with each other. And so they'd bring their problems and their issues and their complaints to Gandhi about this one and that one that they were working with. And he was always, apparently, according to this story, he was always very surprised because the face they were showing to him was completely the opposite. The, you know, around in his company, they were really, you know, bright and shining and loving and clear and quiet. <laughs> so, you know, that there was some way in which his presence was eliciting their best selves. I don't know if this is true, but it's a great metaphor. <laughs> And we actually know that that's the case because there are certain people that we're on our best behavior with, right? When we're in their presence, we feel uplifted. And we feel, you know, we're not, gonna, we're not wanting to bring our crazy neurotic stories. They seem irrelevant, right? Mm. <laughs> it's one of the... Um, it's one of the gauges that sometimes people will ask me, well, how do you know if you're with, you know, someone who's clear? How, how do you know if you're with a teacher who's really you can trust? And how do you know this? How do you know that? And I always say, well, the answer lies in you. How do you feel in this person's company? Right? So it's the same, it's the same in reverse, that how do they feel in your company, you know? I feel guilty. If you're not providing um, some sort of help? Yeah, I feel guilty that my life is easier and, mm. you know, mm. um, you know, this person is quite socially isolated. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's guilt. I mean, I'd love to be able to help, but over the years I haven't really managed to do that. And it's guilt because you think the world was supposed to be just? Mm, I think so. Mm. And well, have, have you seen much evidence of that? No. Mm. So you got singled out as the one who won the lottery and all the others didn't? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... it's um... Yeah, it's a very old friendship and um, yeah. lives have gone in different directions. And Yeah. Um, but I would just say to you, I'm just questioning the guilt part. I understand yeah. having compassion. Yeah. Um, you know, I definitely get that. Mm. But the guilt part is some extra conditioning that I would just invite you. Mm. And again, not as, it doesn't have to be a project, but it's an extra layer <clears throat> that I would say is um, unnecessary because it's not as if your well-being has caused her not to be. Yeah. Right? 
that might be a case for guilt. <laughs> if you had stolen her fortune <laughs> or something. <laughs> but but um but um your your lot in life also through no necessarily no no particular merit of your own, right? Just the way it played out, because that's how things go here. It's, as far as I can tell, it's fairly random. <laughs> you know. Some of us on earth, something like one percent of us live in circumstances that are just extraordinarily privileged. I'd say everybody in this room is in that category, right? If you were to really take that on as, you know, as the dis if you understood the disparity of it and just fixated on it and thought that there was some way that you were causing it, it would be crippling. But the fact is, that is how it's set up. It's, it's how it is how it always was. And all you can do with it is, um, well, exactly what we're talking about, that you stay, you stay in your sweetness of being, you shine that light wherever it happens to land. The people who come into your orbit perhaps will be, find some sustenance as a result of that maybe a little wake up in their own case into that. Not that you're imposing that, but that it's catchy, it's contagious, and that that's your offering. And in that, I always point out, I've written a whole entire book about this, in that wakefulness, in that clarity of being, all kinds of beautiful qualities come with it as, as byproducts, right? All, all, all you're doing is hanging out in your sweet spot, and somehow, along with that, comes greater generosity, mm. greater discernment, greater um, love, greater joy, a sense of wonder, an ability to be quiet, an ability to feel empathy, compassion, etc. All of that actually just comes. And, and, and spills out of you. Right. That made me laugh because um, these byproducts are not efforted. That's right. They're not the products of effort and no. determination. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. They, they, they're innate qualities that are very recognizable. As we say those words, we all know what they mean in our own case. We've all experienced all of them. But what happens is as you, as you, you know, steep in this perspective, those qualities uh, become much more frequent for you in the day much more common as your common experience. And one of those qualities, discernment, looks at the world, understands that there is disparity, has a bit of a broken heart about that, but doesn't fight the fact of it, right? 
And that's an interesting thing. To, it's an interesting dichotomy that you can be sad about something but not fight the fact of it. You understand that? I'll give an example, an extreme example, which was that on the day that I heard my beloved brother died at the age of 38 suddenly, um, I was, as you can imagine, shattered. I mean, it was just the most shattering news, the most shattering words to hear. And, and I went into immediate heartbreak like I had never known, and I had already known a lot of heartbreak. Um, but one thing I was spared was a story that it shouldn't have happened. I was spared that story. I know that things like that happen to all of us, right? I know that that happens, so I wasn't, I didn't have a story that it shouldn't have happened, that he was too young to die, why him, what, who, you know, what did, you know, how was fate formed to make that happen? I didn't have any of that. I dealt with the pure loss. Right? I felt the pure loss of it. So that's what I mean, that dichotomy, that you can be sad about something, but not fight the fact that it's as it is. That made me think about um, being considering oneself or viewing oneself as a victim of circumstance. Mm, yes. Um, and surrendering or not, not feeding the story of victim. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Which, which is a pattern that I'm, I, I can speak of because I recognize it runs in my life. Yes. Is that, uh, is that up for you now? Is that, is that a pattern that's operative now? It is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more, I'm capable of doing more than I'm doing um, in a world where the, I could be participating in such a way as to... Um, Help more. Help more, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, I sometimes, I mean, and, and I'm not going to say that that isn't true for you. It sounds like you know what's true for you. Um, I do sometimes find a kind of poignancy about the way that we all have a kind of indoctrination about fulfilling our potential, right? Somehow having to be more, do more, or having some sort of sense that we've missed the boat. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that maybe it's true in your case that you're feeling a calling somehow and you're waiting to be used and you want to be used. 
And that's fair enough. I understand that. I'm just cautioning in case anybody else is afflicted with this other problem of, you know, we Westerners have um, a great pressure to manifest, right? And, you know, it's a big thing that we're expected to do. There's almost um, a template that's reinforced, reflected, strengthened in my life all around me in, in the examples of how a life is lived in, for example, Melbourne, um, yeah. a Western culture, yes, material right. culture, right. which includes several milestones that everybody seems to be, you know, um, moving towards or, or ticking off or achieving or... Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. It's, it's, um, that is definitely the case in especially Western culture, you know. And um, I always point out, look at what all of those pressures Look at the end result, right? There, there were many, um, long before Burning Man, by the way, there were many ancient cultures whose ethos was to leave no trace. That the highest thing you could do is to leave no marks, you know, to not mess anything up, to not use the resources, to, to leave it exactly as you found it, <laughs> right? to have um, stepped so lightly on this earth and not have to have some big, huge legacy of a bunch of people, you know, tearing their hair out because now you're dead, right? Um, one of there's a there's a, a Chuang Tzu poem that I really loved. I first read it probably 30-some years ago. It's called Lao Tzu's Wake. And I'm not going to get it exactly right, but um, Chong Su says that he went to Lao Tzu's wake and he yelled his name out three times and he left. But he was he was dismayed by seeing all these you know women sobbing their hearts out and people just falling on the ground crying their hearts out. And there's a line at the end where he says, you know, what did he do to bind them to him so? Right? It's a great, it's a great torquing of how you expect it to be, you know. That so it's one of the it's it's to challenge a lot of the ways that we have this expectation and it's conditioned, but on ourselves to live some life that we imagine is the real life that we should have been living, that we should get to somehow, and if we have time, um, instead of just celebrating the life you're in and being grateful that you're living lightly, right? What is happening on this planet with the the conditioning, the pressure, the cultural hallucination of more, 
more, more, and legacies, and putting your somebodyness out into the world, and all of that, we're raping this earth, right? It's being destroyed faster than any of us can even know. And, you know, to not be part of that system, you could make a case that that would be the highest good, <laughs> you know. But I hear you that living in Melbourne or living in New York or living in any big Western city, you're stepping to a different drumbeat entirely if that's, if that's how you are, that you're not that interested in a lot of collecting and a lot of manifesting, a lot of proving yourself and a lot of being somebody and all of that, you know, you're, you're, you've got a different drumbeat going. I definitely do have a different drumbeat going on inside me. And um, I feel so contrarian to my whole reality, my whole world. I do too. I move in a different direction. Yes, I do too. I had lunch today with my oldest friend um, who happens to be here in Melbourne just by chance um, visiting a friend of his. And um, I've been friends with him since I was 14 years old. And we were having this very conversation today <laughs> just about how we just, we just lived a really different or whatever the you know river of our lives was that you look at in hindsight, it was just totally outside the box entirely. And we just never fit in. <laughs> you know. And I've always I've always hung out with the misfits. Um, and I would say I may I knew, I would I knew make, we'd get along. Yes, exactly. I would say also I consider I consider not only these living misfits, but the other misfits I hang out with are the misfits of history, right? Such as Chong Su, and such as the Buddha, and such as Christ, and such as Ramana Maharshi, and Alan Watts, and Krishnamurti, and the, so on. I, I have hung out with the misfits of history as my crowd. And I, I'd like to point out here that those are the people who we, we most exalt in history, you know. Though we, know, we all know who Pontius Pilate was, we don't exalt him, right? We all know who, uh, you know, Nehru was, we don't exalt him. The people we, who's, who open our hearts and whose words live in true flames in ourselves. Um, they were misfits. They were lucky to not get, you know, crucified. And some of them did. Um, so that runs as a fear inside me. I, I will be crucified if I was to live your, full, your live, true life. Live my true life. Why would that be the case? Fully. Why? Why would you get crucified, actually crucified? Like, why would you, would you get murdered? Or? Yeah. It, I represent uh, a change or, or a threat to... The status quo. The st yeah, the paradigm, which mm -hmm. is personal ownership, 
mm-hmm. power, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, competition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. division. Well, there's a growing number of you. You know that, right? There's a growing number of people who are challenging that system and who are, those numbers are, I think, are going to grow exponentially as things get tougher, as the resources get more and more scarce. It's going to be more and more obvious that this system is toxic to life on Earth. So you're, you just happen to be one of the early adapters. <laughs> so your, your safety may be in greater numbers later on. I, I know it can feel very, very dangerous, and it could be that some of your ideas um, are very, very dangerous um, to the status quo. But, um, you know, perhaps... W- there may be a way. I, I'm a nonviolent proponent <clears throat> because I think it's, of course, the most kind and it's also incredibly effective. <laughs> um, ultimately, um, violence doesn't turn out to be effective if, if, if effectiveness is, on, is one of your values. Um, so if you can proceed in a nonviolent way, and speak your truth, and live your life in your own truth, and also know that your numbers are growing, so you won't feel as alone. I I was just thinking of Socrates' apology, and he apparently stood before his accusers and, and said that I, I choose death over um, moral um, compromise. Yeah. And that struck me as being a very brave thing. Yes, that is a very brave thing. And many people in, in history have made that uh, choice over and over and over again. You know, it may be that you don't have to make quite that choice. But it seems to me that there could come a point in one's commitment that death is the easier path than making a moral compromise. I think there's plenty of examples of people we might admire that I do admire who have had to face that, you know. Um, but anyway, for now, let's, let's see if we can proceed. Uh, <laughs> you know, in a, on a nonviolent path, it doesn't disturb, you know, it doesn't ruffle so too many feathers. a nonviolent path doesn't mean there's no violence. Obviously there is violence around us. Yes. And nonviolence doesn't necessarily protect you from violence. But it won't, it won't actually, um, it doesn't tend to instigate it. 
It's just the effect, it's sometimes the effect of it, of the violence towards you. In other words, I've studied a lot of nonviolent um, movements because I, my very first book was called In the Footsteps of Gandhi, and it's, it was, it was a, a look at all the different contemporary Gandhis of our time, people who had been inspired by Gandhi and who were heads of movements, um, nonviolent movements. So <clears throat> um, one of the things you see over and over again, they're not looking for trouble. They don't want, they're not trying to instigate violence against them. They're just, they're just refusing to participate in a circumstance, right? Uh, like, for instance, people who did the sit-ins at the lunch count- counters, African-Americans who started going to places where it was whites only and sitting at the counters that they had not been allowed. They weren't trying to make violent confrontations. What they were doing was refusing to participate in the the apartheid that was existing, right? So that's a distinction. You're not trying to make somebody come at you, but it can, it does happen. It can happen, of course. The nonviolence is in your own heart, so you're always operating. You can operate from your own internal nonviolence, you're not looking for trouble, but sometimes trouble may find you due to you keeping in your own moral stance. I was very ambitious to be a psychologist once and um, to help people as we want to help people and help people and help people. Um, and life didn't go quite in my direction. And um, I was on a trip in India looking for my natural father, whatever, it's a long story. And on one occasion I saw this little three-legged dog, this mangy little dog hobbling through the streets and I went over and bought it some biscuits and tried to feed it and it wouldn't accept them at first and I came back and I moved back and it finally ate them. It only occurred to me about a year or two ago in this whole thing that as much as I wanted to help people and be a psychologist, that actually, for me, I realised the peace was actually in every little moment. Yes. Not in actually wearing, helping anyone in the big moments and being a psychologist or being whatever the hell it may be, but actually in the small compassionate moments. Yes. And I think my lesson, I was looking for my natural father, and which was a bit of a disappointment, but one of my greatest teachers on that journey right through India was the little dog. That's beautiful. <laughs> I hear you. And I, I recognise him in myself partly too because I'm a bit lame and I do have a disability, a psychological, uh, I have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder since about 11. And he was just hobbling along and I thought neither of us deserve any of the pain, we just are what we are. <laughs> and in this little moment I have the privilege uh, to see myself in you and give you a few biscuits. Yeah. Right? I realise that's where it is. Mm, that's mm. where it is for me. Mm. Yeah. Um, and recently I was asked to clean the toilets at work. I work in mental health and, you know, oh, I've done a degree, I shouldn't be cleaning toilets. And I'm so glad that I didn't feel that. I thought, my God, I'll clean it with love. Yeah. And yeah. that's a privilege. That's not something I've generated for myself. That's just a bit of meditation and the way God or the world or the life force takes me. And I think, my God, I can clean a toilet without thinking I shouldn't clean it. Right, yes. And You're not making it a trouble, a problem. Yeah. Yes. And that's freedom. 
Yes, it is freedom. Yes. Um, and the other thing I was going to say just quickly, because I work with youth in mental health, do you think one way of getting them into this ability of stillness is basically mindful mindfulness meditation? Because that's what I try to do with them. That thing about feeling your body, getting out of here. Yeah. And um, absorbing yourself in your, your body. And that's, that's what I'm trying to initiate. I think that's the journey to the heart, the spiritual place. Yeah, that's certainly a mindfulness practice is very useful for beginners and children. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, yeah. a, it's a prerequisite, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just to get them to pay attention to their senses. Yeah. Yeah. And, and get out of this Get out of just mode. thinking, 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 thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I know all about that, having my illness, but I'm, I'm grateful anyway. Being beautiful. Here. Thank you. Love that. <laughs> As you were talking about the dog, I was having a memory. Yeah. It just came flying through. One time I was in India and I was at a train station and I heard this beautiful, beautiful singing. Um, and I kind of followed, you know, kind of walked toward it, my friend and I. And we came upon this, um, this kid and he had a rope. And so he's pulling this, he's got this rope on a lead, uh, and there's a blind man with someone who's crippled on his back. So the boy's got this short lead pulling the blind man who's carrying this crippled person on his back, and they're singing this most incredible, they're singing this three-part harmony of the most beautiful music. And, I mean, it literally brought tears to my eyes just standing there watching this because they seemed, they were lit up, you know. They had this kind of, like, holy light, you know, running through them. And so many kinds of insights, like you just described about you looked back and that the moment with the dog was, like, what popped for you in that whole spiritual journey. You know, those kinds of things that one suspects are just sort of scattered about like grains of sand on the beach that we just go by looking for some other thing that's bigger, you know, that's more exalted, that's more a classic spiritual experience or understanding or whatever, when in fact, I always say, you know, there's somebody I know who used to have this uh, program in the States called Waking Down, (laughs) you know, that it's really about here on earth yeah. you know also yeah. simplicity i was going to say for me is um you know i know even in this journey i don't know if other people feel it but when you get into that spiritual stuff and meditation you again competition starts to seek in and you start to go am i getting it am i attaining it am i ahead am i ahead of this one am i ahead of that one and the realization again is simplicity it's actually yeah. the reverse yeah it's There's reverse no- Especially when you've given up any idea of attainment of anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm amazed at that. There's no way to be ahead or behind. <laughs> no, it's completely irrelevant mind-made stuff that totally. keeps us separated and in suffering. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you. <laughs> This has been In the Deep. 
You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private session by phone or Skype and see my upcoming events, such as our New Year's retreat at the ocean near Lennox Head, Australia, or our residential retreat in New Zealand in May of 2019. If you're a regular listener, please consider making either a one-time or a recurring tax-deductible donation in any amount that's comfortable for you, or you could give us a review wherever you're getting your podcasts. Till next time.